you believe change is needed within the education system to ensure the well-being of teachers and young people is at its very heart, then join the Well School movement today. We are united, the biggest stakeholders in the education system. We can wait for change or we can be the change. If not now, then when? And if not you, then who? Sign up to the Well School movement at www.well-schools.org. Our community is here to help you on your journey. All our young people need you. Join us today. Hi, and welcome to the Well Schools podcast. We're your hosts, Anthony and Kay. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Kay. Hi, everyone. Kay, we're back. We're back. Hello, Ant. Oh, it's great to see you, Kay, and it's and it's, it's great to spend some time with you again. I know we've had a little bit of a little bit of a hiatus, a little bit of a break. Um, we're, not, we're not concerning ourselves on holiday, though, unfortunately. Well, I live in Liverpool, so we don't really get that <laughs> much sun up, up here, unfortunately. Uh, but what we have done is we sort of we sort of stopped and we paused a little bit and we looked at where we are with with the podcast where we've got to and I think that the episodes we've created up to now, especially looking at like the the, the real like the, the ones with Warren King and and Ben Levinson, you know, really really powerful stories that that have been fed back to us. But what we want to try and do is in the future make sure that listeners are, are sort of are given the opportunity to to listen to some of the the problems that we're facing in schools today, some of the issues that we're hearing, and unfortunately we're hearing more and more issues, aren't we, in schools at the moment? Yeah, well, obviously schools are a reflection of the community in which they serve, and we are seeing growing trends. And and I guess that impact of the last two years, we already had some worrying trends, and they've just been exacerbated by the last two years. And our schools pick up and reflect on that. And obviously we know that young people have been some of the biggest impacted and our education system has been the most disruptive, um, disruptive, disrupted um, parts um, by COVID. So, yes, we're definitely seeing some worrying trends out there. No, absolutely. And I think one of the things that's coming through, especially through the, the work that we do with head teachers, with school leaders, uh, with, with, with different networks of schools that we work with, a lot of them are saying the same thing around this issue of focus and attention, especially in young people, not just young people, but isolated just the students. You know, some some of our staff as well, some of our teaching staff are struggling with this focus and attention. And you can attribute a lot of it back to, as you said, the last two years where we've just spent a lot of time disconnected, um, away from each other and not having that sort of structure and routine around us. So what we wanted to do was try and bring to the table an expert in the field of, of focus and attention, but not just say you need to work harder, you need to concentrate more, actually give some real practical advice to what focus and attention can can almost look and feel like in a, in a classroom yeah and um, you know we reflect on our own lives for me personally that I've become a bit fascinated with the concept of focus um I, I definitely have seen a trend in my own self around how I've become my concentration has become far more fractured since working from home um I didn't know if it was just a case of getting older and an aging thing but from the things I feel, I've yeah. read and looked at it's definitely a societal shift in our ability to focus and you know it's not something I had ever considered it's just could I focus or not in the moment I'd never really thought about the environment that I needed to create to allow myself to focus I'd never really thought about the skills seeing focus as a skill and how can I improve in that skill and how can I create the optimum environment and 
obviously that ability to focus in young people is a you know we all learn through homeschooling how difficult it is to get our own children to focus those of us that were trying to get youngsters through all of their tasks in a day you know how do we get them to focus and how do we not only think about how we can get them to start focusing but how can we retain that focus so it's definitely something that resonates with me and has been a, um, a bit of a journey of fascination for me recently no and same here to be fair and i know what you're talking about then in terms of i my, again me i i sometimes blame focus and attention on, on myself as an individual but you know I know that we've just recently read the book Stolen Focus yeah. by Johan Hari and, and he talks very passionately about this almost like a global assault on focus and attention and when we're trying to get young people to hit, hit a target or achieve a test score or um, achieve something that the school needs them to achieve it's a massive part of that of that that picture that we want to paint in that narrative and I know that very recently you've been digging into the the government white paper which has just been recently released around schools and what that looks like in the future. Yeah, well, obviously that's been released this week. So we've spent a lot of the week really diving into that white paper and what that tells us. And, and it's great that there is some real ambition set out for the academic achievement of our young people. So the white papers paper sets out an ambition um, for the average GCSE English language and maths to move from 4.5 to 5% by 2035. And a big shift in SATs results for young people in reading and reading, writing and maths, currently at 65 and an ambition to get to 90% by 2030. And for me, it's great that we set ambitious targets. It's all in how do we get there? You know, the devastating impact would be if we turn our schools into exam factories, where it's all about how do we get kids through this test and how do we drill the young people? For many years back now, I um, produced, I I was doing some work on a particular project and I always go back to a slide I produced, which is about creating an environment of optimal learning. So it's as important that you spend the time preparing yourself physically, emotionally and socially to learn as the learning itself. And I often talk about, I can't remember if I've talked about it on the podcast before, but describing that learning as like a bucket. And what we often do in schools is we turn the tap on. If we need young people to learn more, it's almost the reverse of the emotional bucket that overflows. And if we think about that bucket being retention of knowledge, we want young people to achieve more. And the tap gets turned on and on and on, losing break time, staying after school, losing that freedom, free time, that play time that young people would often experience. You know, spending less time pulling them out of physical education. We see that a lot, just do more time in the classroom, returning and turning that tap. But unless we spent the time ensuring that that bucket is in the best possible shape, that bucket's got big holes in it, whether that be lack of sleep the night before, huge hole in that bucket, problems with social interactions with their friends, big hole in that bucket. You know, that build up of energy because they've just not been out of playtime, hole in the bucket. And we're losing all that knowledge. So we turn the tap on harder and the knowledge is just escaping. So, you know, I've had a blog in my head for a long time of the uh, dear teacher there's a hole in my bucket and how can we ensure that that bucket of knowledge that retention of knowledge for a young person is in top shape so we don't need to force that tap up but we can ensure a really steady stream of knowledge that will help those young people achieve in GCSEs and in their SATs results but you have maximum impact because you've really ensured that that young person is healthy happy and ready to learn. Well, I think that's an absolutely amazing message to take into this episode. And hopefully what we're going to hear from Rachel McKenzie, um, and you'll hear more from Rachel. Rachel is a, has got about 20 different titles, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> world tie boxing champion right through to 
neurophysiologist, which was a new one on me. But um, Rachel's going to help us to understand what focus and attention means. And we're also going to introduce this week as a brand new feature. It's called the Well Schools Book Club. And I think this has come out of a passion from you, Mika, because every yeah. time we speak to each other, we just read a new book or I cheat a little bit. I've listened to a new book, maybe. Yeah. Um but we're going to start the Well Skills Book Club and we're going to, int- we're going to ask each um, guest that we have in the future to put their recommendations forward about a, a book that's changed their life or changed their perspective. So listen out for that in this episode. But I will also look forward to your book, Kay. There's a hole in my bucket. I'm gonna, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, be getting that, I'll be getting that on pre-order. So without further ado, I think what we'll do is we'll jump straight into the interview with Rachel and let's just put real attention and real focus on the problem of attention and focus. This week, our special guest is Rachel McKenzie, world Thai boxing champion, qualified neurophysiotherapist, and athlete mentor. Throughout her career, Rachel has had to overcome prejudice from those who do not believe that women should compete in a contact sport. Through her success and perseverance, Rachel has helped to improve the profile and opportunities for female Thai boxers around the globe. Rachel now uses her expertise in neurology, psychology, nutrition and sleep to help people be awesome. Hello Rachel and welcome to the Well School podcast. We're very excited to have you join us today. Brill, hi, nice to see you Kay. When we started on this podcast, uh, Rachel, we've been working with you for so many years now and I've heard you speak at so many um, different events that we knew we needed to get you on today. Um, So let's start for those that haven't met you before in our networks. Um, You have a very impressive pedigree in sport. And I wanted to start there a little bit about who is Rachel McKenzie. Tell us a little bit about um, you before your professional career and your your life in sport. Let's get to know you a little bit. Um, I suppose I'm an unlikely athlete, so I'm one of the athlete mentors that uh, supports work of the Youth Sport Trust. Um, I'm a world champion in Thai boxing, British boxing champion. I've been lucky enough uh, to represent uh, England in in those two sports. Um, I didn't start, I don't have a normal journey into sport, and I think that's been really helpful for me in terms of having empathy for um, young people, but also for older adults who don't find that they have a space in sport. I was really lost from sport in those critical teenage years, you know, sort of 14 to 18. Um, I, I found that um, sport wasn't filling me in the right way, partly because of the experience I had in school. I didn't play sport outside of school. Um, and I had a whole whole raft of mental health issues that weren't supported positively by my sporting experience at that time. Um, and I think because of that, you know, I, I just stopped playing sport really and kind of found myself at 18 having been out of sport for a considerable number of years. Um, but then walking into a Thai boxing gym a, a little bit by accident really with a friend who who persuaded me to go and having almost that switch turned turned on inside me you know when you find a sport that really gives you that release um, and you know my, my studies and the sort of work I've done following my involvement in sport have led me to an understanding about why I have that release but finding a sport that really changed the way that I felt about myself um, 
tra- transformed me really in in a whole whole range of ways. So I, I never set out to be an athlete. I never had any intention of being a successful athlete. Even once I started competing, it happened a little bit by accident initially, and then a little bit by design. Um, but really driven from a place of sport made me feel better. Sport resolved for me lots of the issues I had around my mental health. Um, and I think that's a really, it's been a really useful and insightful place to start on my journey of exploring the role sport has in that kind of wider societal context. Yeah, but it's so interesting, though, that we often talk about sport as being the answer to things. But for you, it was very finding you didn't have that sense of belonging. And it was when you found that sense of belonging in that particular sport and in that particular environment. So it might not necessarily have been about the activity, but the environment it created. It's it's fascinating and gives us hope that, yeah, you know, it's such an important role to help young people keep exploring different um, places, different environments in which they can experience sport. And, you know, we, we often think of that journey of being a, a top athlete starting when you're really tiny. But, you know, I think there's something really powerful in your story of a the knowledge you bring that you, you, it wasn't from birth. You were naturally born to love sport. No, and I, and I think it was about that. It's a, it was about that. So context and the role that we as adults have you know I loved sport as a primary school student I had a fantastic and I've talked about my PE teacher Mr Gilgrass a whole range of times because he had a really powerful impact on me um, in those early years so I played a lot of sport as a young child my secondary school experience of PE was really quite negative you know I, I, I had a school that was focused on one sport elite performance in that one sport a sport I hadn't played before so I didn't have the competence to be successful in that sport um so you know I, I was driven away from sport because I already felt bad I had some mental health problems and then I would fail and then my PE teachers wouldn't recognize success that I had across other sports so because I wasn't being rewarded and recognized for uh, you know some of the qualities that I did have I, I withdrew from it and I, I you know we have a role as adults to play in ensuring that the language we use around sport really builds a narrative for young people that they have a place in sport and not just for young people who are successful for all young people yeah and and so important but also just highlights that could have easily been the path to never participating again for you that could have been your future journey and it's really interesting um that that wasn't and what what is it Rachel of interest what was the thing that turned you from got you into Thai boxing was it community friends um, yeah, so a friendship that sort of took me to, you know, my housemate at university that took me to, to the Thai boxing club and going along with her, you know, she wanted to go. So I would go along with her to sort of keep her company. And, you know, she was my best mate. So there was that drive for that social connection, wanting to build that friendship, I suppose, in a relatively new environment. Um, but actually just participating in the sport, you know, I, I was physically very weak, but the, the movement aspect and the way that movement, I was still an adolescent, remember, so, you, you know, that the shaping of the brain still continuing in that those university years in terms of our development of emotional resilience. So just that physical experience of becoming stronger, actually physically stronger, but also the impact that that physical strength had on the way that I was able to cope emotionally. You know, when we built the, 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 the link between physical and emotional resilience is so connected mm. in the brain. We can't overlook that link. Um, and because I was physically stronger, because we turned up every day, because we repeated activity, it built for me kind of an emotional resilience that 
almost by the time I'd developed enough skill and enough emotional uh, competence to be able to stand up for myself um, and was sort of told I couldn't I couldn't do Thai boxing on my own without another girl to kind of train with I, I'd progressed enough along that emotional pathway to be able to uh, stand there alone as an individual you know and actually moving outside of social group as an adolescent and being an individual uh, requires quite a lot of uh, emotional maturity and I, I believe that you know that turning up every day with my friend hitting the pads learning new skills being challenged physically was what built that emotional maturity for me you know I started fighting because I wasn't allowed to essentially it was a, a, a girl in a boy's sport you know in the 90s early 2000s you know <laughs> a couple of decades on mm-hmm. um, but but actually there wasn't really a place for me in lots of the environments I went into um, and I knew I, I sort of instinctively knew very strongly that that sport was the sport I needed in order to maintain my emotional well-being. Uh, so I was really fighting, I suppose, dramatically, rather dramatically, fighting for my life. Um, yeah. you know, I mean that in a very real way. Mm-hmm. And and that, that brings us on to a little bit about another facet of you. So not only have you been Thai boxing champion, <laughs> boxing champion, um, we're here today to talk about focus. So what brings a, a sports person to, a, to the table to bring us my focus? But I think you've just articulated so well your why there that the sport was actually the thing that helped you understand the other components of your body. We often think of it as physical, don't we? We, we participate in sport and we have the physical impacts, but you beautifully articulated that segue there of actually for you, it was that the link to the mental health um, and that journey. So Tell us about why we'd be talking about focus. What else of your amazing achievements would be that you'd have you here talking about focus? Well, I was at university and I was studying to be a physiotherapist and I post-grad specialised in the brain, essentially, so in neurophysiotherapy and in young people, in the development of young people. And the medical model of physiotherapy is very reductionist, a little bit like education. You know, if we're teaching science, we just think about science and not the wider child. Uh, but, but that was what I saw in, in my early career. You know, a child had come in with um, perhaps a, a, a delay in their motor control, so they weren't walking at the expected level. And we'd look very, I suppose, specifically at certain elements of that gait pattern, of that walking pattern. And what I realised over the years and years of involvement in young people, both in a clinical setting, but also in my work in schools and education, was that we can't separate all of the different facets of child development in order to allow children to thrive. You know, it isn't just about uh, that cognitive and emotional development or that physical development. They're so intrinsically linked in the way that the brain develops that we have to access a child, the whole child, through their experience of the environment. And actually, a lot of that comes down to the way a child experiences the environment through that physical movement, particularly in those early years, but the way that they're allowed to access the environment as they move through and into education. And when, you know, when we're talking about children, I'm talking about children all the way up until that sort of end adolescence at kind of 25-ish, you know, the the brain's very plastic over the whole of that time period. Um, And, you know, we often think about single experiences can shape a child's brain, prolonged experiences can have a a really significant impact on a child's brain, Um, but but it all kind of feeds into 
the way that the child's brain is shaped as they move into adulthood. And I will say for those of you older, the, the brain's never fully uh, fixed. So if you're thinking I'm 45 and I want to learn French, it's still possible. It's just a little bit more challenging. <laughs> it, it, I mean, that gets really to the heart of world schools around us talking about we shouldn't just think about the different component parts of a young person's experience. We should, if we want young people to achieve academically, we want to kind of fill their brain with knowledge yeah. You bring that full picture of that's not just about time spent immersing in that knowledge. There are other parts, the other pillars that make up a well school that really ensure that that young person, when they are in that classroom, when they are experiencing that knowledge, are in absolutely the best shape physically, mentally, socially to absorb that information. Um, and that guess brings us on to our topic of focus. So in preparation for today's podcast, I went and um did a little bit of research, pulled a few quotes on focus. So it's just interesting to pick your brains on. What is focus? First of all, I was like, okay, we talk about it all the time, but what is it? Um, um, So some of the quotes, it's a thinking skill. Focus involves knowing what to pay attention to in different situations, learning how to get started on a task and understanding how to sustain attention and effort to the task in hand. In essence, focus helps us to get started on something, sustain our attention and carry on the effort through to completion. I was like, that's a learning experience, surely. That's every that's everything <laughs> in the classroom that we're trying to achieve. Yeah, well, it is, uh, providing you've got the physical foundation to uh, attain focus in the first place, uh, particularly in the academic context. So, you know, we think about focus and um the empirical evidence around how long we should expect children to focus is quite poor, really, when you look at the robustness of the research. In fact, it's quite poor across the whole lifespan, um, ju- just because it's quite hard to do large-scale randomised controlled trials around uh, focus and attention, but particularly for young people. But I think generally the consensus is that that sustained focus that you're, you're sort of talking about there probably tops out at about 20 minutes. You know, so think about how long our lessons are. Um, and if we're focusing on a task in a single way for um, a sustained period of time, those who are competent and have the required components, physical components in particular, um, but are probably in secondary school topping out at about 20 minutes of their capacity for focus. And, and even as adults, you know, the, the metabolic cost of thinking, of that cognition, um, means that we're not able to focus for really very much longer than that. There are, there are met, we, we go through this sort of metabolic rhythm through the day. Uh, there aren't any good studies in children, but if we take the adult, adult model and then assume that for a child, we can probably quite uh, legitimately assume that, um, that children will have less of a... You know, we're not going to ask a kid to run a marathon hour because the metabolic uh, skill, the requirements for that. But for an adult, we've got about a 90-minute ability a 90 minute cycle of metabolic activity before we need to rest and 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 i'm thinking you know if you're looking at a task if you're sitting at your desk working um you know you'll probably take you five ten minutes to get into that task you've maybe got 60 minutes if you're really good at focusing to kind of get through that task and then you're falling out the other side because of the effect of fatigue and and fatigue at a cellular level so if we know that for an adult we've got 90 minutes before we then need to take a rest and that rest I don't you can go and have a lie down if you really want but actually more effectively that rest would involve movement away from that 
thinking task, that cognitive task, and preferably some physical movement. Um, but we need then to have a break of about 20 minutes so that we get almost, we, we move out of that, we call it an ultradian trough, so the, the, the metabolic waste is dispersed, so the cells are, are ready to go again, essentially. You know, the, the battery's been charged up again and we're ready to go again. And that's at a very cellular level. Mm-hmm. Now, we can't override that. And, you know, we, we will come out of that ultradian trough if we keep pushing ourselves through as we're expecting our young people to do. But we'll come out of it. Wait, say say that again. Point. Say that again, Rachel. You've got to say that again. The, the what? Trough? Yeah. Ultradian <laughs> trough. So we think the ultradian rhythms are kind of natural cycles. And there are lots of different ones in our body. Yeah. You know, blinking, breathing, things that happen in a cycle. Our, our circadian uh, clock is part of that. You know, our sleep cycles fall into that ultradian uh, rhythm of 90 minute cycles. Right. It's it's a, that one down. That's a new word. Yeah, it, it's a fair it's a you know it's a, a sort of biological norm essentially that we have this ninety minute metabolic activity this cycle of activity um, which then requires a shift you know after we've completed it and it's a shift that's required for really very important biological reasons you know so that we don't burn out at that cellular level. And, and if we power through it, which we can, because, you know, we can't all necessarily take a break at 90 minutes, we'll come out of that trough, but our next peak will be at a lower level. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're asking young people to repeatedly fight their way out of, an, of that metabolic trough, then you're not going to be able to maintain focus across the course of a day. If we've not given them sufficient periods of physical activity, moments to rest, moments to move, then throughout that school day, what we'll see is that our ability to focus and to maintain concentration and our performance decreases in every subsequent lesson. So really, just at a very simple cellular level, uh, our focus is determined you know, by some of those kind of functioning aspects of, of the cell. But we're, we're asking young people to focus and concentrate um, probably without having the required fundamental skills you know and and the the again the empirical evidence isn't brilliant because we don't routinely test the fundamental movement skills of young people but if we look at the balance and coordination of young people um, as they enter primary school sitting still is a really complex balance skill actually it's easier to keep moving so if you think about riding a bicycle if you set off and you keep going and going and going it's easier to maintain your balance going at speed than if you slow down and the same thing happens we see the same in sort of adults with neurological impairment if you look at somebody who has a condition like parkinson's disease for example it's actually once they get going it's easier just to chase that center of gravity and keep going and keep going and keep going than it is to maintain that kind of slow sustained balance and we want young people to sit still mm. still um, and maintain mm-hmm. balance without knowing whether or not they can do it without knowing whether their physical competence outstrips the demands of that environment lots lots to cover there i'm going to go back a couple of times <laughs> what, what i really took from from that the, the huge piece that resonated is just we are designed as human beings to behave in a certain cycle and if we neglect that cycle we become far more become completely inefficient more and more efficient the more we neglect that that cycle that that was my kind of layman's terms of what <laughs> just i wonder how much of that 
is considered in every classroom. They, they actually, they can power through. I think that's an important thing. They can power through, but that dip, 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 dip each time, that actually we become far less efficient the next time. And again and again and again. And what does that look like by the end of the day? And I know that that's clearly known because we had things like what's goes at the start of the day, like literally at the start of the day, it became structures, but actually it doesn't need to be like that if we really looked at how we behave as a human being and catered for that need. Um, yeah. Such an important part of this. But one thing I just really wanted to focus on a little bit more, huh? focus. Um, I'm reading a book at the minute called Stolen Focus by Johan Hari, and I know Ant's online, and he's reading that too. And he describes why we can't pay attention as a global attention crisis. So, what do you think about what's happening with focus of young people? Is, do you have any experience of what's happening within generations of young people? And you know, what our young people face data, perhaps we didn't ex- experience and that um, our predecessors before. I definitely know that I feel at the moment, particularly, and I'd to be honest, put it down to age. I thought that was just part of the aging process that I now am far less able to focus. You know, I really struggle to read a book. Like I used to just be able to sit and read for long periods of time. And now I, now I can't, I have to keep, my brain pulls me somewhere else and I keep having to pull my focus back in again. And that's not 90 minutes. I'm talking four minutes, five minutes. I'm and I just kind of thought that was part of the aging process and that was what started to happen. But in Johan's book, he really brings to life that actually that isn't something that's just happening to me. That's happening to everybody. And yeah, do you have any well, thoughts on that? I do. And the um, we're not designed to focus for really extended periods of time, you know, evolutionarily. If you were just to sit and focus on one task for a very long period of time at the expense of other sensory stimulus around you, uh, then you're in, at increased risk. You know, our, our, our brains in terms of their evolutionary development haven't hugely progressed um, over the millennia. You know, we're, we're, we're still expecting a lion or whatever to jump out of the bushes. Um, so... That, that amount of time that we should be able to create focus and sustained focus with, at the expense of other stimulus is probably shorter than we expect. It's probably shorter than we think. Is there really good evidence that things like technology have um, had a, a detrimental impact on focus and attention? I don't think from a cognitive perspective that the the literature is very robust around that. Um, there is some suggestion that the dopamine reward system, which drives behaviour, is impacted by um, the, the immediate stimulus that you get from likes, uh, you know, happy stuff that's on your screen, or you know that. And, and particularly for young people, adolescents, their brains are um, particularly driven towards that dopamine reward system. So they're looking to be, um, I suppose, rewarded more readily than, than we should be as adults. But certainly we will be impacted by that. Um, it, it's very complex, I, I think. So there's a little bit around social connection, I think. So if you have social connection in person, that stimulates the brain in a very different way to social connection through a screen, through technology. If you yeah. don't have a broad range of social connections on a daily basis and and social connection is really protective for the central nervous system for a range of reasons but if you don't have that so if you're working at home if you're not interacting face to face and picking up from other people the mirror neuron interaction you know getting that mind on mind kind of connection if you're not having touch which you know stimulates 
oxytocin release, which is our connection hormone. If you're missing those things, your brain will look to, to be stimulated through reward in a different way. And I think that's probably why we look and we get drawn to this social media uh, kind of stimulus response because we're almost missing that social connection a little bit. Um, I, I, for me, that's where sport has a really important role to play because in sport, whether you're an individual athlete or whether you're in a team sport, you are constantly, you can't avoid connection with people. I can't train without my team, you know, somebody holding the pads for me. Um, I'm having physical contact with my team because they're patting me on the shoulder or maybe they're punching me in the face, but we're cre creating physical contact that's stimulating those centers of the brain that I suppose fill that need, fill that need that we have as social animals um, for a network. Um, so, so it has focus deteriorated for young people. It probably has, but for me, it, I would suggest um, that it's probably more about a reduction in physical competence that means that it's harder for young people to sit still. It's harder for them to place their eyes on an object and maintain that, um, that visual balance. It's harder for them to track an object across a room. So their vestibular ocular reflex um, isn't responding in the same way that it would be. Particularly, um, and, I, and I hate to bring up the COVID conversation, but particularly because we've contained children in inside spaces without giving them exposure to the natural world, without giving them wide physical experience for the last two years. We have yet to see the impact that that will have um, in the coming years, unfortunately. But if you if you think about the way that we focus, so in order to focus, you have to be able to look at an object and exclude other sensory stimulus. You also have to be able to maintain your body in a physical space dampening down uh, some of those sensory inputs that you're experiencing. So if you're if you feel unbalanced, so if the information that you're getting from your vestibular system isn't very well developed, you might be constantly getting information about where's my head, where are my eyes, where you know how how am I positioned in space? Well, that hyperstimulation of the vestibular system, because of the way the vestibular, the balance system, is linked to our limbic system, the emotional system, through something called the reticular activating system, which drives posture and arousal. If you feel unstable in space, that creates and stimulates a biological response that's very similar to the stress response. So if I'm stressed, am I now in a, um, my body thinks I'm in a state of threat. So I'm not going to focus on one thing because I now need to be aware of all of the possible threats that are in my environment. So it's really difficult for me then to sit and read or to concentrate on this maths problem because my system, my biological system, is telling me there is threat in the environment and I might be thinking, what is coming to get me? So I'm constantly, at a subconscious level, scanning the environment for where that threat is. My brain doesn't know that that threat stimulus is being driven by the fact that I don't have the postural control to you know, dampen down some of that stimulus that I'm getting my brain doesn't know that I don't have that postural control because I didn't spend enough time rolling down hills when I was young or going upside down or being thrown up and down by my mum or dad. You know, so it's a very complex, yeah. <laughs> long answer to do I think uh, focus has got worse? I do, but probably not for the reasons that uh, some of the, some of the people might think. Yeah, but then that becomes completely fascinating because we've got two angles here. We've got the amount of time we're asking someone to focus and how we 
manage that so that we get optimum focus. But then we've also got that that the building blocks, the foundation that allow someone to come into that environment. So again, this is all so in line with our well prepared, which is about how do we give the young people the physical and mental toolkit to turn up in that classroom and be able to perform at their very best in that classroom, in in the classroom every day and in the and in life and the world afterwards. So it's you know that science of because we have removed so many of the key development physical development opportunities for our young people body doesn't have the skills to concentrate even if we were only doing it for 20 minutes and we're injecting other things unless we've made sure they've got that toolkit then they still will struggle with you know shutting everything else out so they can focus on that task yeah and and you'll see it across the the lifespan of their academic career but also progressing into adulthood you know if, if yeah. you're if you experience the world in a physically uh, hyper-stimulated state because of your vestibular system, because of your balance system, then you will always be in that more responsive state to emotional stress. So your, your, your muscle tone will always be higher because your body's trying to give you rigidity because it feels like it's unstable. So the feedback into your limbic system, into your emotional centers in the brain is that oh, something must be coming because I'm tight and I'm ready to go. So then when, you know, you, you have an interaction with a teacher, a boss, a, a spouse, your response to that is already starting from a heightened state of, of stress response because that's where you're naturally sitting. So, and the con, you know, the consequences of that we could talk about in terms of lifetime outcomes um, but but we do know when we you know if you look across the literature young people who participate in sport outperform young people who don't um, and even from and we're not you know we're not just talking about sport we're talking about all physical activity um, but but generally speaking young people who maintain sport as a, a part of their you know adolescence into adulthood are young people who've got a good foundation of physical competence because they've had good early experience of movement because the longer you delay developing those physical movement skills that foundation of good physical um, competence the harder it is to take part in more formal um, sport as we would sort of perceive sport to be because there's just that competence gap you know if you're trying to take part with your peers who have good balance, coordination, are able to track objects sufficiently, are able to coordinate their, their limbs and coordinate with other movements, are able to regulate their muscle tone, and you don't have that skill, you can't take part in, in that sport at the same level. So, you know, you're demotivated, you're not able to achieve success, and ultimately, you know, you, you'll lose the motivation and the ability to focus um, in, that, in that sort of physical sporting environment. Rachel, just to pick your brain on that a little bit further. So, remembering back to my own childhood, there was far less structured sport, I would say, then. I definitely, I personally did participate in sport, but it wasn't something that was broad across communities, which I think there's a lot more structure now. So, it it's not just sport. Obviously, we, we know that sport creates that amazing, but what's what's changing young people's lives that, that mean that there's that, you know, the loss of those kind of physical milestones for them? And I know you touched on it before, like rolling down hills, like, but what is it that's changed from my generation, generations before that's been removed, not just structured sport? There's there's something going on in children's lives every day that that's changing this for the mass population. 
Yeah, so, so there's a bit around re reduced access to outside space yeah. um, and free play in an environment. Uh, and if you think about the sort of natural world, you know, when we, we, we can go back to that, can you stabilize your eyes in order to track an object? Well, when you go outside, you'll see a bird flying across the sky and you'll follow that with your eyes. You'll see the trees bending and blowing in the wind. You'll see a leaf blowing down the road and you'll follow that with, so all of that repetition of tracking an object develops for a young person that that skill of what something we call smooth pursuit well you need smooth pursuit in order to read in order to look across a classroom in order to follow a ball in a sport in able to to be able to follow your friend running across the playground well that is is constant in the natural world you know you see that all the time in the natural world you don't get that if you're looking at a screen because the size of a screen isn't sufficient to require you to look around that periphery of your visual field. Yeah. So so exposure to the natural world. I think the second thing that I certainly see in my clinical practice that sort of as a pediatric physio is the containment of small children. So young babies really, you know, they need to be on a parent, on a mother with physical contact, or they need to be on the floor rolling around, you know, exploring the what develop on the tummies, developing that that physical competence, feeling their hands, putting their feet in the mouth, all that sort of stuff that teaches them where their body is in space. We have lots of um, sort of commercial um, access now to things like, you know, contained seats that support babies in certain sitting positions or put them into standing positions, all, all, all different things that we feel we're doing as a you know we feel unnecessary in order to give our child a rich experience of the world actually what they just need is to be freely able to move and experience the world and to take objects that are random and to as they you know grow and sort of become kind of uh, toddlers and that sort of thing to take random objects and to create their own movement and interaction with those objects they don't necessarily need to have sort of well, they definitely don't need that sort of formal contained play. And, you know, we're all doing our best. I'm a parent, you know, we're all doing our best as, as parents. And we've got, we're, we're constrained by time much more now. Yeah. So I suppose it feels harder for us perhaps to, to give our children just that. Let them go and see what happens. You know, we're concerned about safety a little bit more, you know, and almost that freedom to fail and failure is how the central nervous system learns how you know if you think about how you learn the skill acquire the skill of shooting a, a ball i'm going to pick a sporting context just because it's easiest but mm -hmm. putting a ball into a basketball hoop yeah. you probably throw that ball at that hoop 300 times before you get it once well that one hit triggers a little dopamine reward in your brain your brain's like whoa that was the right connection so it strengthens that pathway but the same thing happens for movement, you know, and for balance, we need to allow children to fail in order to allow them to learn. So the be careful, don't stop, don't fall off, that, that sort of narrative that we have around safety in the school playground, in playgrounds with, um, you know, in the park, actually restricts a child's ability to develop some of that motor competence. You know, we, we talk a lot about the different types of play and um, I'm always banging on about the, the, the need for us to allow children to rough play you know that rough play of physical contact so we're learning how to manage ourselves in relation to another person but we're also having our balance system challenged slightly out of our control and we're learning how to respond to that balance 
that's not just developing our physical competence, which it is, but it's also developing our emotional competence. So we're learning, our, you know, we're developing the ability to respond appropriately to another person. We're developing the ability to respond appropriately to challenge that's outside of our control. And all of, all, you know, all of those skills are absolutely critical for enabling a child to show up at school with the ability to sit down and focus. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I feel like I sort of went on a bit of a random there, a bit of a ramble. I don't know, no, you weren't random at all. <laughs> completely fascinating. I think that, you know, have we as a generation completely lost sight of the important learning experience of play? Because, you know, I think we think it's a nice to do, but actually it, just heightening that awareness of it, it's building creativity, it's kind of building social bonds and connections, it's, it's developing the pathways in the brain that allow you to do all the other things that then follow on from it. And we completely underwrite it. And, and you're right. I, I just think about my childhood. I think I was quite lucky. I went out in the morning. I came back when I was hungry and I had to be home by the time the lights were on. Whereas I, my children do play out, but there are far more bonds on the, you know, the, how far they're allowed to roam, how far away they are from me and my supervision. It's changed. And I think my children have quite a, a lucky experience in comparison to some young people and then I also look at school and I think have we done enough to you know when young people have lost that ability I used to come home from school and I would play for hours and before home bed they've lost that but then we also have cut it within schools like how many schools do we talk to and they've cut playtime or even from just just what you're saying there and I've been involved in these things structure their play with an adult over the top of it really creating you know here's a game, here's the activities, here's the rules, I will manage those rules, actually completely destroying the, the natural environment of which play allows a young person to explore the freedom, taking that freedom. And have we just forgotten how important that is? Yeah, and that freedom and motivation is really uh, important in the context of learning because we're driven to learn by things that motivate us. So, uh, and for young people, a lot of that motivation comes from that physical experience. You know, the... the we look at the, the amount of representation in the brain of the different parts of our body. The hands take up a massive part of our, our brain for really good reason, because that is the way that we explore the world. We get lots of information. You know, I'm very gest gesticulating a lot with my hands, even though people won't be able to see what I'm doing. We touch our hands a lot. We use our hands a lot because that uh, and that that interaction with the world through the sensory input that we get from our hands helps us to access those higher centers of the brain, those cortical parts of the brain that are really what we want the kids to access if they're going to learn. So why are we asking children just to use their visual system or, you know, maybe their auditory system in order to learn? Why are we not asking them to use that physical system? You know, why are we not accessing that really massive opportunity to strengthen the neural pathways, to improve the opportunity and the um, that that access in terms of learning by giving children physical hands-on um, experience in, in, in every subject not just in PE we should be looking at ways that we can incorporate that whole sensory system when we're asking children to learn because that is the way the brain expects to learn when we you know if you look at the animal kingdom as a whole the, the, young the young learn through movement they learn through play and, and that is what our body is expecting. It's what it's expecting from us. So we're not, you know, we haven't developed to sit and read a screen or to read, you know, to, to follow a problem just cognitively. 
we've developed to use our whole physical world in order to learn concepts. You know, and, and we're, we miss a trick. We miss a trick if we want to optimize a child's potential by not making sure that we allow them to physically experience that learning. Um, and, and actually, when we think about potential, intelligence doesn't really correlate with outcome in terms of performance if a young person doesn't have the physical foundation in order to access learning. So a child can be extremely bright and will perhaps get through school managing well. But if you look at a child who might be performing OK, relatively speaking, but still can't kick a ball in your PE lesson or balance on one leg, I'll fairly pretty sure guarantee you that they are not reaching their full potential. Um, because actually sitting in the classroom and they'll power through, you know, we, they'll power through, they'll do all the work um, because they've got the cognitive intelligence to override some of that um, physical instability that's but, 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 but at the detriment of them reaching their performance, unfortunately. Yeah, and I can, I can just kind of really see that, that, you know, it can be masked by their, their getting through, by their thriving. It's the difference, isn't it, between managing to make it through. So... We've talked about so much there and we've also covered and put solutions in there. But to go back and to give some for those people listening that think, OK, that's really resonated with me. But where next? I just want to simplify the recommendations at the end of it. And I've, I've, I've taken everything you've said and I've put them into two kind of key areas of focus. And the first one being how do we physically prepare people to learn, ensure they've got the physical skills to do it? And then how do we give them the right rest? So if we go with the physical skills first, what would be your recommendations to a school? We've talked a lot about play, but how could a school do that? What are we asking our teachers to do for young people? So the, so the really important part of that movement skill is around that balance and coordination, that those key elements of that vestibular system. You know, loads of myelination, that strengthening of that system happens between kind of six and eight so in primary school. So those teaching that year, those year groups really have a massive opportunity to make sure children progress through education um, with the skills that are required to learn. But, but thinking about how, you know, how are we challenging the physical balance, the, the, that sort of coordination, and not just coordination in terms of, um, you know, the, the, can they kick a ball, but can, can they look around the room adequately? Can they follow? Can they track? Is their head coordinating with the rest of their body or all that whole coordination piece, hand, eye, uh, whole body coordination? Are we, are we asking, you know, can children balance? Have they got static balance? Have they got dynamic balance in lots of different postures and creating ways that children can play in those, you know, so, even really simple things like can they can they balance on all fours? Can you know can we play a game that challenges a balance through some of those kind of early movement skills that young people might not have had lots of experience of at home moving through that kind of developmental pathway if if they're not robust around the way that they've moved through what we would expect to be normal development of a physical pathway. We we can almost go back and make sure that we've strengthened some of those pathways in order to allow that that balance and coordination to develop a little bit more as we'd hope it would. So building in opportunities throughout um, play and movement to balance, to coordinate, to you know integrate with the physical world in as many different ways as possible. You know, that and in every we don't always have to sit on a chair to learn. You know, that, 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 would, that would be a really simple place to start. 
Absolutely. And actually, I'd argue that perhaps it, it's it's not optimal, particularly for primary age children. But and what we start to see, Rachel, if we if we're working on that, if we're working on the balance, the coordination, getting young people out into the physical environment and play, what what benefits would we start to see with that young person in 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 their learning? Well, you'll see some immediate benefits. So if you if you're high, if you're not balanced, and we go back to that kind of you, you, you're driven, you've got that hyperactivity because you're getting too much stimulus. You almost need some physical release in order to calm that calm that stress response system down. Almost. So you know, if you're really tight, if you've got lots of kind of that physical energy being held to to support your balance, play physical play, movement, sport, physical activity through that contract relax through the impact that it has on the, the the neurotrophic factors in the brain just helps stimulate firstly that that calm that dampening down of the central nervous system but it also stimulates that the parts of the brain that are responsible for focus and attention um, and learning you know so the so the neurotransmitters that are released flowing physical activity stimulate those parts of the brain that are responsible for focus and learning so you know, it's a really simple thing, actually. And I'm not sure why every classroom doesn't start with some physical activity, because we can see in studies from across the world that children who are active before uh, lessons are, are perform, outperform, you know, those that, don't, that aren't active. So not only are physically active children kind of better at performing over the lifespan of their education, after physical activity, immediately after physical activity, they're better at performing in that moment. Mm. Um, and that is because of the way that the you know the contraction relaxation of muscles and that heart rate rising and the shift in the autonomic nervous system releases those neurotrophic factors and those neurotransmitters that trigger and and activate the parts of the brain responsible for focus mm. and learning mm. so you should see that your classroom's calmer you should see that your children do more in less time as well so actually you won't need the hour to complete the task and you'll have enough time to give them those breaks that they need metabolically because they'll have got the work done quicker <laughs> so exactly you know, win-win exactly the essence of well-being at the heart of education it's not supposed to be some fluffy term it's supposed to be exactly that if we do that there is it is exactly win-win it's not well-being physical mental or academic it, they are so closely linked that it, it as some of our ambassadors yeah. would say it is the work so and, and I was just reflecting when you're saying now how often do we treat the symptom like how often do we we see that young person behaving like that in the classroom and we try to manage that behavior or we take away playtime yeah. you know or yeah. we take yeah. away or we put them in isolation you know those children who can't concentrate in class who are talking in class who are looking for stimulus because perhaps they need more arousal in their vestibular system to be able to 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 stay um you know in that classroom we take away all the stimulus then and we put kids in isolation who have demonstrated that they lack the competency to stay in a classroom but have we actually gone back and looked at why do they lack the competency is this a competency around their motor control and their ability capacity to maintain actually the physical requirements of sitting in a classroom is this a, a lack of competency around their emotional stability which would again be fed into through their opportunity for physical activity and the impact that the movement has on driving autonomic um, shift that, that change in you know move from stress response to that relaxed and focused state 
actually probably the worst thing that we can do to those young people is contain them in sitting in a space where they're lacking social interaction, they're lacking opportunity for physical activity, they're lacking sunlight, so their, their circadian clock is now absolutely haywired because they've not had enough sunlight through the day. And then we'll expect them to turn up the next day, having removed all of the key ingredients that they need in order to access education in a meaningful way. We'll expect them to turn up the next day in a different state, when actually what we've done is disrupt their central nervous system in every meaningful way um, and put them into a state that means that they can't learn and access that, that education very well at all. Yeah, that, that would be my yeah. <laughs> that would be yeah. my yeah. Be, yeah. If I could remove isolation, I would. <laughs> yeah, some of the core things that we turn to, we perhaps need to just shift our focus onto what's what's the cause rather than what's the behaviour that they display. And actually, that's understanding the workings of our bodies and our minds is is key to that. So the the second one, then I think there'll be so much correlation in the response here, but. Coming back to that kind of how, um, and I know we've talked before about we've done our, I'm trying to think it's 20 minutes. I don't have 90 minutes in my head then. We've done our 20 minutes of focus. What's the best way to ensure that we arrive at our next period of focus in peak performance again? What should teachers be doing with those young people? So it needs to be a total shift in cognitive load. So if you're, you know, if you're reading, if, you, if your task is, um, involving words so reading talking that kind of thing your shift then should be towards something that is probably movement based would be would be my uh, preference uh, but but something that doesn't it, it, it involves a different part of the brain really so a different processing system ultimately um, and the easiest way to do that would be just to get people to to move otherwise you have to come up with really different creative ways of um, you know sharing the information whether that's videos or whatever but but actually getting just moving so you've done your 20 minutes of focus and then we can have a stand up change posture change the way that we're interacting with each other you know so that we if we're sitting and working individually perhaps we move to a group task or perhaps we move to a, a task that involves looking at different objects around the room or you know something that changes the cognitive load will help maintain our ability to access some learning for the required lesson time you know for that amount of time that we've given for that lesson so if it's a 60 minute lesson you know we probably want to be thinking about two or three different ways of accessing learning um, over the period of that of that time so whether that's different postural sets so we're learning a different environment in terms of our physical being or whether that's a different way of accessing the information from a cognitive perspective well, that, they're, they're really useful tips in how we structure and get the best out of young people. Final thought for me, though, what about, you, you talked, um, when we, we've talked previously about the enrichment of complete rest. So we there talked about like different types of activities, but the real power of complete rest. So the importance for you of playtime, lunchtime, that time where, you know, the learning changes. I was going to say stops then, but we've, we've established that it definitely doesn't stop. Shifts to a different type of learning, but with that real freedom and outside experience. So how important is it that we keep those those real breaks? Yeah, and the more physical we can keep them, the better, obviously, for, for a whole, you know, and for the reasons outside of learning that physical activity to ensure we're meeting that 
that 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous activity, which has health implications outside of today's topic around focus. But absolutely, that opportunity to remove yourself from that cognitive load, so from that requirement to be focused. Um, allows that the brain to, and, and a very you know that very basic cellular level allows us to have that moment of reset. So you know we clear out the waste, we reduce the inflammation that's there as a part of you know just normal activity of the cells, um, and we give ourselves a, an almost restart to the day. Um, or you know so having those breaks in is really really important that there are moments of time if a child's had difficulty with learning where their stress response has increased where we get that reset you know where they get that chance to reset their autonomic nervous system so they don't stay in that fight or flight mode because if that's if you've, if you've struggled with maths and you found it challenging in the morning and actually that's stimulated that stress response if you've not had the opportunity to reset your autonomic nervous system, the rest of that day you're in that fight or flight mode. And as we've already talked about, fight or flight means loss of focus because now I'm looking for danger. So that, that moment of play is really critical for us um, in, in allowing young people to reset um, and to be able to move into that state that, 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 that's necessary if they're going to learn. Rachel, I think you've given us a really... Um in-depth look and I know we've always talked about daily physical activity and the link to brain function I think we've all just stopped our scientific knowledge there and you've really brought to life for us that if we want to do the right thing for these young people and we really want to achieve our goal which is optimum academic outcome but also our moral purpose of of well-being for young people really understanding that science of the brain and the body and how they're intrinsically linked with those outcomes is incredibly important so you've taught me lots of new words today you've given me a really clear framework where I now feel that I'm much better informed so thank you so much you brought to life well prepared in a way um that I, I, we've not explored yet and that's the real science of it all so thank you so much for your input today but before we let you go we've got one question for you and that's the World School Book Club so we're asking all of um the people that join the World School podcast if people have listened to the podcast today and have been completely fascinated, um, as I'm sure they will be, with what we've been talking about, what would be your recommended go-to read? Is there a book that's helped you or a podcast you listen to? What would you recommend as uh, next steps for any listeners? So I think from a pr practitioner's perspective, if you're looking to implement some really simple exercises into your classroom, if you look at uh, the work of Sally Goddard Blythe, she's written a book called The Well-Balanced Child. Um, it's got some of the insight into, um, you know, why children might struggle in terms of their learning um, because of these physical, you know, the physical foundation but what it has got in it it's really a book for parents and practitioners to implement some real simple simple exercises simple activities that will help young people who haven't had and I, I, you know I, I feel like I'm, we could all probably lump in a whole load of young people that haven't had the opportunity to access the physical world in the required way in the way the brain expects um, it's got some really nice exercises it take 10 minutes and you could do a few of those in your classroom every day um, and there'll be some young people in your classroom that will really benefit from starting at that foundational level and building back up again great well thank you for joining us today um we are honored to continue to work with you and to be on this journey with you so thank you for all our listeners and thanks to me and Anne. thanks very much Kay.
Okay, I'm not even apologising anymore when I say that that was an inspirational guest. Uh, now, we've known Rachel McKenzie, obviously, for a, a long time, um, and we know what she's all about, but hearing Rachel's words and hearing Rachel's in-depth knowledge of, of how the, the mind works, how the body works, how it's they're not mutually exclusive, um, it was absolutely inspirational. One of the big things that come through for me was when she talked about you know, moving is, is preparing to learn, being active, uh, moving with friends, playing, you're getting ready to learn. You're getting in that that headspace and that physical space as well to learn. I, I thought that was incredible. Yeah, it is that. Again, we talk about it a lot in well schools. Come back to the how do we prepare young people to learn and those skills become essential skills for the rest of their life as well. Um, you know, I think she talked there a lot about how the environments of the physical, so play, just lost from our society um our children don't play like they used to play i know my children don't play like i used to play i used to have freedom to roam i'd be building dense climbing trees i was a right tomboy you know i was up to all sorts trudging through bushes jumping over streams and that's not that long ago like i'm not that old for the shift in generations for my children now who you know i i let them play out but that's really restricted they definitely don't have the same freedoms and we really explored what we've lost there, what's been lost and what I took from Rachel is, you know, that not only the kind of the moving is preparing to learn, but also the skills in those environments, the, the, the physiology of your body and the things that we've lost. You know, when she talks about your art, the movement of your eyes, you know, how you pick that out from being in nature. That was totally fascinating to me. Like, you're right, like things flying across the sky we used to be in fields throwing balls around you know and that is so important to, to learning and um you know those are the bits that i found really fascinating there's lots of it i found fascinating yeah and, and don't worry you're not you're not old trust me i can i can still <laughs> just about remember playing out with my mates again um and you know when 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 rachel talks about you know having given young people the freedom to fail or but even just the freedom to play because the freedom to play is giving young people the freedom to fail. Yeah. And I think, again, we, we're almost losing that as well as society in terms of yeah. letting people fail, letting people try new things. And that's that's where innovation starts. Innovation starts from, I'm going to try something, I'm going to test it. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. We're almost engineering that out. And mm. I think one thing for me when we talk about what we've all just been through as a as a society, as a community, the last two years, are we, are we going to slip back into potentially old bad habits and even as the you know the elders in the room that you know the elders in the village you know we know that during the during the last two years I've had to try and build this activity into my day to, to get me in a better place to to pay to pay attention to be more focused. How many people have we heard from who say I was going for walks, I was going out, I was getting out inside the fresh air, um, I was trying to get a better sleep, I was trying to get better nutrition. These are all almost basics of life, but with we're engineering them out of our lives and I think what Rachel reminded me of is that we can't go back to where we were and I I don't like the phrase new normal but I'd like to think that schools who have embraced physical activity during the last two years can find a way to continue because if we don't we're going to lose those 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 essential ingredients to create a a focused and attentive uh, student base. Right. I, I refer back to that we talked about at the start, Johan Hari, and I was listening to a podcast he was on the other day. Um, total fangirling there, aren't I? I'm reading his book, listening to his podcast. But, um, he's, he's an interesting guy. He's an he interesting is. guy. Um, and, and he was saying, let's do something every day that, that's uniquely human. 
that makes yeah. us what are the usps of us being human and again comes to our one of the strands of of well schools which is about you know what are the human skills but he was talking more about you know we used to be out in nature we used to what are the things we used to run we used to um and i'm not even talking like what did i used to do i'm talking going all the way back to kind of the creation of human beings and the curation of the the component parts of the brain the, the way our bodies function and, and how can we start thinking about that and prioritizing that we are moved so far away from our beginnings as human beings but how far has our bodies and brains come and you know hugely interesting in in Rachel's part when she was talking about you know the body misreads situations the brain misreads situations because you know if you're you haven't got basic balance and you're sitting in in the classroom and you can't balance sitting on the chair effectively you haven't got core coordination your body misreads that misbalance as danger in in the environment and you get into a heightened arousal state like how fascinating is that and um you know so much of that was developed through freedom to play and when you talked earlier I was didn't want to jump in but you were talking about you know freedom to fail as well how much of that happens though because we're constantly watching our children you know how many of the things I used to do about failure was could I jump out that tree could I make it across that stream like failing my parent wouldn't let me do that if they'd see if they'd been watching over me if I was only in my back garden or in a room in the house you know we would jump in and we would prevent that from happening now I'm not saying we should just let the children run around correct having but I survived you know I took risks and I failed and I learned on my own without someone trying to prevent me ever failing and trying to be that kind of safety blanket around us we need to keep our children safe but in the pursuit of safety how much are we taking away from them yeah and again you know we talked about it in the intro okay and we talked about this almost like this attention economy you know there's a there's a a lot of things that are happening around us that that are, that are that are sort of playing against human beings, if you like, not just students but 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 adults as well. And and yeah, you're right in terms of that freedom to fail, that freedom to play. Yeah, to think back to my own childhood and some of the things that I did, some of the things that I was um, involved with. You know, they've taught me how to interact with the world now. They've taught me how to, and it's not easy. This is not easy stuff. You know, it's not easy talking about getting more more physically active or allowing our children to, to, to play. It's not easy just to say, get more sleep. It's not easy to say, eat better food. You know, there's there's a whole economy built around the opposite of that. But schools, I think, are a real, real um, place where we can start to build this culture of more moving. The, 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 the importance of sleep, not just on the physical state, but also the mental state. And when Rachel was talking about when we sleep, how the brain works, the brain is still active and it's, it's washing all the toxins out. It's sorting out all the memories for the day. You know, that was really, really powerful for me. And I think that if we can learn from that and we can start to look at what our young people need the most, then I think we can only be in a good position going forward and we can hopefully take the silver linings of what we've learned in the last two years and make them almost staple in education every day. Yeah, I see a sleep podcast coming along. I'm I'm fascinated by sleep, Kay. And I know it's the other end of the spectrum for what we normally talk about, but in terms of well-schooled, preparing young people, when we talk about preparing young people for life, I want every single child to understand the importance. Now, that might be because I've, I've had two babies. You've got the, the sleep ring, haven't you? Other, other yeah. brands are available. Don't mention the brand name. But you... Yeah, other brands are available, but I have invested in sort of like a wearable to track my own sleep. Now, that might be because I've got two baby boys who just love <laughs> keeping me awake at night. It's like their hobby. Mm-hmm. Um but I think as a youngster, as a young person myself, I would have loved to have understood 
the science of sleep and why we sleep and what it does for us and how sleep helps us to be in a better physical state and a better mental state the following day. And, you know, I've, I've seen examples of that in schools where young people might turn up late to school and rather than getting told off for being late, the first question from the teacher is, have you had any, have you had enough sleep? Have you had something to eat? They're the first questions because that then enables the teacher to know is that young person ready to learn. Um, so that's, that's all, again, that's, that's been a, a, a big driver of mine. Yeah. And again, that incredibly important, all of those things build the picture of prepared to learn. And actually, and if we don't invest equal amount of time in the preparation for young people to learn as it, the learning itself, coming back to that well-being is the work concept from previous podcasts, we don't make equal investment the time spent if that young person comes in with no sleep hungry not been out and done any form of physical activity their body and their mind are not prepared to optimize what's happening in that room so when Rachel talks about actually they will pick it up quicker they'll complete the tasks quicker if we've invested the time so it's not time away it's not less time to do it's more effective time um, by making those two things of equal importance Absolutely. Okay. Well, I think on that, again, we've had inspirational conversation with Rach. Uh, we've had obviously some of the stuff coming through around being physically active, around getting better sleep, around your nutrition, your environment. Again, I can see more and more episodes coming from this one because I think it's such a, a big area. But okay, thanks for your time. Thanks for being here and uh, look forward to the next Thank episode. You. Spend some time with you again. See you, Kay. See ya. Thanks for listening, and we hope you found this episode useful. The best way to support the podcast is to rate, like, follow, subscribe, and even share with your social networks. We'd also love for you to leave a review and let us know what you want to hear about in future. We'd like to thank our partners, the Bupa Foundation and the Youth Sport Trust, who have been with us since the start of this journey and have some really powerful tools and practical ways to support an improved culture of well-being in your school. You can find out more at bupafoundation.org or at bupafoundation on Twitter and youthsporttrust.org or at youthsporttrust over on Twitter. If you'd like to find out more about our special guest this week, you can follow at Rach F. McKenzie over on Instagram. And finally, if you'd like to register completely free as a well school and join the movement for change, then head to well-school.org and sign up today. You can also find us at well underscore schools over on Twitter.